Greetings Grapple fans and welcome to the latest edition of Let Me Tell You Something's Match of the Week, an ongoing series in which me, your Let Me Tell You Something co-host Lorcan Mullen, and your other Let Me Tell You Something co-host Silent Cross, take turns picking a match from the history of pro wrestling to put into a modern context and to maybe give some historical flavour and ideas for your own wrestling viewing when you want to get to know some other aspects of pro wrestling that might be related to the stuff you like now. For today, it's a match that I think is quite an influential match in the culture of pro wrestling, at least in the immediate aftermath of its popularity. And it's from maybe the most influential wrestling promotion of the the 90s. Which, Simon, what match are we talking about today? We're talking about a match that takes place at ECW's Living Dangerously pay-per-view in 1999. It is for the ECW television title. And it is the challenger, Jerry Lynn, taking on Mr. Monday Night, Rob Van Dam. This was also, funnily enough, you announced him as Mr. Monday Night, and this is how he's announced by the uh, ring announcer for this match. But this was also the show where after... This match took place. There was a backstage interview trying to explain exactly what was up with that weird ending. He interrupts the referee to say that he's now going to be known as Mr. PPV RVD. The reasoning for that being that really the Mr. Monday Night gimmick had run its course. This was early 1999 and the last time Rob Van Dam had appeared on a Monday Night TV show would have been around late 1997. Oh, okay. So this was also when ECW was ramping up the number of pay-per-views they were putting on. And also Rob Van Dam at that point had an undefeated record in pay-per-views. Ah, okay. I can see the, the reason for the transition. When I was part of the pro wrestling craze of the late 90s, early noughties at school. Now, I'd always been aware of wrestling. I'd always have followed it. Whereas some had dipped in and come back out. I remember there were a few guys that we swapped VHSs with. He would have an ECW show and I would have an ECW show. I did have ECW Living Dangerously mm. on VHS. That was one of the tapes I purchased specifically for this match, basically. Ooh. And I always remember one of the videos I was always keenest to lend out was my copy of the 1996 Survivor Series. Because a lot of people would try to sound knowledgeable by criticizing Stone Cold Steve Austin by saying he's just a punch and kick man. Yeah, and so I would give them the '96 Survivor Series. It's <laughs> got the art. Uh, it's just very endearing to know that you've not changed at all in like your entire lifespan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm still trying to educate people in a hopefully not too condescending way. But the medium is now not through actual human interaction, but through internet waves. <laughs> So yeah, I lent them the Survivor Series 96 to show them Bret Hart and Stone Cold having a fantastic technical match. And that's another one we'll have to do for Match of the Week. The problem is I have like so many Bret Hart matches I want to talk about. I kind of don't know which one to pick first. And I always try to limit myself with my WWE picks as well. Yeah. Maybe we'll just have to do a... Let's have Lorcan talk about 
10 Bret Hart matches for for an episode. We're going to have to scratch it itch at some point. Some point, yeah, I suppose. But if you were to argue in 1999 that some people were, that the best promotion in America was not WWF, and it certainly wasn't WCW, it was ECW, it would be through Rob Van Dam, and I suppose through these sorts of matches, there was a healthy contingent of wrestling fans online that considered Rob Van Dam to be the best wrestler in the world. Well, what what month of 99 was this again? This was April, right? March. March. I, I do apologise. The war was pretty much over. So, like, all the excitement had gone. It wasn't so utterly deflated. WCW hadn't been WWF in the ratings for a while, but as early as January, as recent as January, you'd had the NWO Wolfpack change. And in theory, that still wasn't utterly deflated and destroyed. We were about to get, or it would have been around the time Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair had their steel cage match where suddenly Hogan was the face and Flair was the heel and nothing made any sense anymore. Uh, WCW for you. Yes. But at the time, there was that sense that ECW maybe we're putting on the more consistently good matches on the card. If you just go on like a mathematical equation of which shows have the most three-star-plus matches, certain people would argue those were coming from ECW. Okay. And, of course, if anyone would be related to certain ratings of matches, you'd assume you'd be the guy with the move that's literally called the five-star frog splash. And what an athletic frog splash it is. It certainly is five stars as a move. But I was wondering about this, and I think it's kind of going to be my premise going forward, and again to bring it back to Bret Hart, unfortunately, is that I feel like there are two types of wrestling fans out there. There's a way you can split people. There's always anyone saying there's two types of people. There's people that do this, and there's people that do that. Well, you can literally apply that to everyone. Yeah. There's two types of people in this world. There's people called Simon Cross and Lorcan Mullen who are doing a podcast, and there's people who aren't and don't. You know, you can always do that. But there was a cut scene, actually, in Pulp Fiction where Uma Thurman's character is in, is interrogating John Travolta's character, I suppose, with a, a camcorder. Okay. So it was still trying to obscure her face when she first turns up. And she's asking him a series of questions, and one of them is that you're either a Beatles man or an Elvis man. <clears throat> you can like the Beatles and Elvis, but you can't like them equally. Ultimately, you will prefer one over the other, and that's a sign of where your tastes ultimately lie. Okay. I think the one of the ones you could say with pro wrestling is that you're either a Bret Hart man or you're a Shawn Michaels man. That's not in a sense of morality. That's in a sense of how you like your wrestling. Okay. And I was thinking that you're a Shawn Michaels man and I'm a Bret Hart man. And the best example I would give of that was when we were doing the five-star match for Dragunov Volta. Yeah. And I said, would you rather, if you had to watch all, if wrestling matches could only be of one style, would you rather be Volta versus Dragunov or the Young Bucks against the Lucha Bros? And you went with Young Bucks versus Lucha Bros. And I think that's what Shawn Michaels would say. And mm. I went with Volta Dragunov. And I think that's what a Bret Hart would say. But you don't have to make it be Bret Hart v. Shawn Michaels. You could be a Jerry Lynn man or a Rob Van Dam man, I think. Okay, yep, yep. And I think if you're a Bret Hart man, you're a Jerry Lynn man. And if you're a Shawn Michaels man, you're a Rob Van Dam man. Oh, now see, my relationship with Rob Van... Well, my relationship with Rob Van Dam. Watching Rob Van Dam 
I just feel that part of him checked out towards the end of his WWE career, like a large part of him. I think fairly early into his WWE career, he checked out. Yeah, I, he's just a man who by the end was just rolling out all like the signature moves and it was pretty formulaic. And I'm like, that's not the Rob Van Dam I heard about. So I was, this is why I was excited to do this match, quite frankly. Well, the criticism of Rob Van Dam, even at this point, because it was a very divisive figure, even then in the online pro wrestling discourse, like one of the guys I followed, the writer I followed the most in wrestling was Scott Keith. And he always rated ECW stuff low. And I think he gave this match something like two and three quarter stars. Right. Dave Meltzer on The Observer, I was looking at it, he gave this match three and a half stars. He didn't really rate any Rob Van Dam matches that highly. And it's, it's interesting, I was just looking at him on Cage Match. And I know Cage Match is not the be-all and end-all, but it was curious to look at. This, interestingly, was only the third highest rated Rob Van Dam Jerry Lynn match. The ones that rated above it were a sh- match that they had on Hardcore TV in, like, August-ish time. And their pay-per-view rematch that immediately followed Living Dangerously at Hardcore Heaven 99. I still prefer this one to the Hardcore Heaven match that I record. Maybe that's because I have the bias of having watched this match so many times when I had it on VHS. It's seared into your cerebral cortex. But also, very early on in the Hardcore Heaven match, Rob Van Dam gives Jerry Lynn a... I think it's a Van Daminator on the ropes. And Lynn is knocked to the outside and literally hits it head first. Uh. And he's visibly concussed and woozy for the rest of the match. Like Undertaker at WrestleMania 30, just not at the races. Or like Stone Cold Steve Austin in his match with The Undertaker at SummerSlam 98 in Madison Square Garden. Yeah, once you notice it, you can't unnotice it. Yeah. But that match was a lot more brutal and harsher compared to this match. This match was really more of an exhibition. Now, the criticism that always was there about Rob Van Dam was that he wasn't good with his transitions, that he was good with the spots, but he didn't link them up. The term that we came to use when we were doing the Five Star Project when we had issues was connective tissue. Yeah. And you can kind of see where this is from. If you remember anything from this match, you remember sequences, intricate sequences. And that's what Rob Van Dam loved doing. He would get these... In ECW, you kind of cycled through a certain few people on the house show circuits. Mm. And he wouldn't really be connected to any feuds even, particularly. Rob Van Dam, when he was holding the ECW TV Championship, if you looked at his defense history, it's just kind of Little Guido, Balls Mahoney, Jerry Lynn, uh, Lance Storm... And a couple of others, and they just kind of cycle through those ones every few months. Oh, okay. He kind of goes back to them. Like, he'd wrestled Jerry Lynn on and off on the house show circuit for quite a while before this really first high-profile match between the two of them. In fact, this is the first, either the first or the second televised match between the two of them. And they've already wrestled, like, 25 of the 35 singles matches they'll have in their entire run like in their entire careers, when you factor in also the few matches they've had in TNA slash Impact and the one match that they had in the WWE, which I'll talk about a bit later on. Okay. You brought up the connective tissue there, and that's one of the like the things that stick out in my notes of this match, is there are, as you say, a lot of like really good intricate sequences. And in terms of the influence this match has... 
I can certainly see it because you see it in like Osprey Ricochet, like noticeably, like the intricate sequences. A lot of what Osprey does, or Young Bucks, or like any really big name over the, like that isn't WWE based over like the last decade easily. But yeah, it, to me, it's just a sequence and then a sequence and then a sequence. There isn't a lot of connective tissue for me in this match personally. There's innovation though, and I think that's what people loved, and that there was a level of action that you weren't really seeing anywhere else, plus the ECW aspect to it, which is from about the 10 minute mark, the chair gets put into the ring, and the chair is a basis for a lot of these high spots throughout it. Mm. And there is some invention to them, like Rob Van Dam getting Jerry Lynn in the surfboard whilst lying under on top of the chair. And the reason that he does that is that he's able to push Jerry Lynn off, up into the air, roll out of the way, and then when Lynn comes down, he lands on the chair that's waiting for yeah. him. That was a little bit awkward, though, because I swear Van Damme's shoulders were down for like a lot longer than three in that. And I think the referee had to stop himself mm. from counting three. It took me out of it a little bit yeah. in that moment. Yeah, it's a weird thing as well with Rob Van Damme's character because he's such a beloved babyface and he does the flashy high spot moves, but he's still really in the match that's being presented is the heel. He's got the obnoxious manager who interferes on his behalf. Oh, he's so obnoxious as well. When we get to the finish, he essentially wants to chicken out and then he's forced into continuing the match when he reaches the time limits. Yeah. We'll get into that. And he's just kind of obnoxious and and also a bit more of a bullying figure, it seemed to me. Uh, Doing things like that had a bit of, not sadism, but meanness on top of them with placing chairs into situations, whereas Jerry Lynn's more reacting to the situation, seeing the chairs there and... And And just swinging with it, yeah. Like, the spot that everyone loves, and it is so perfectly timed, it's like something out of a movie, is Bill Alfonso jumping on the apron... And I have to say, Alfonso, as obnoxious as he is on his whistling and, and everything ringside, his timing is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Having to, having to be in the right place at the right time, swinging the chair in the right way, throwing it in the right time, everything like that. So he goes to hit Jerry Lynn with the chair. Jerry Lynn catches him, kicks him in the stomach. That takes him away. Turns around to Rob Van Damme. This is the classic spot where someone's got a chair hold up in the hold, held up to their face and Rob Van Damme will hit them with the Van Daminator. But he doesn't. He ducks it, places the chair on the mats. Rob Van Dam, because he misses the Van Daminator spin kick, he goes down for a low spin kick. Lynn jumps over that. By jumping over that, he times it so that when in the rotation of Rob Van Dam's spin, his head is above the steel chair. And Lynn, at that perfect moment, leg drops him down. So he hits face first into the steel chair. And it's a gnarly, gnarly like bump as well. But- Rob Van Damme always knew how to make every bump look crazy. Like, he loves doing those, like, famously the pile driver that Tommy Dreamer does to him where he gets about 10 feet up in the air from it. He's a superb athlete. And he has incredible neck strength by the looks of it. And he likes taking those sort of on-his-head bumps. I remember when his final match of his first WWE run was Rob Van Damme, was him lose... Well, actually, I think he beats... Randy Orton in a last man standing match or some sort of gimmick match. Yeah. But in the post match angle, Randy Orton gave him an RKO onto the chair 
And when Rob Van Dam took an RKO or any of those sort of moves that were like hitting you on the head, he would always make sure that his head was hitting on the mat and his body was up in the air, like at a, an acute angle to, mm. to show that it was a real proper head bump that he was taking, but he wasn't taking. And yeah. um, similarly, when Jerry Lynn hits him with a German suplex in this match, he seems to take it a base as high an angle as you can take it without landing vertically on your head. You do wonder, is that the reason, like... Because apparently the reason WWE don't want him taking bumps now is he doesn't pass their eyesight tests. Oh. And you have to wonder if, like, the head trauma is linked to that. It might be. I mean, turnabout's fair play, in fairness to him, because he spent years kicking chairs into people's faces. They're literally unable to protect themselves because their hands are holding, holding the, chair. the chair up. Yeah. <laughs> so... I don't feel too much... Of course, I do feel sympathy to him, but head trauma was not a concern for him with other people. Actually, I remember his first pay-per-view match for ECW was barely legal in 97 against Lance Storm. And Lance Storm has to hit him with the chair, and his chair shots are so weak that the crowd boos the shit out of him. (laughs) And you wonder if that was intentional or not, because then Rob Van Dam replies by just Van Daminating it right into his face as hard as possible. <laughs> Although Storm is meant to be the face in that match and Rob Van Dam the heel. But again, the heel dynamics of Rob Van Dam whilst being presented as a babyface essentially is weird. But this is also really the time where Rob Van Dam starts to concentrate on his television champion aspects. I mean, as he goes into the ring, he's still co-holder of the tag titles with Sabu. And really for the first year of his TV championship, as much as as often as not, he's teaming up with Sabu to either challenge or defend the tag team titles mm. that he might hold at the same time. But it was really the Jerry Lynn matches that then it became, okay, Rob Van Dam's place on the card is very often main eventing. He main evented Anarchy Rules against Balls Mahoney for the TV title. He main evented November to Remember against Taz for the TV title. Like, he was placed ahead of the world title matches on the yeah. cards. Heatwave as well, actually. The the He wasn't even defending the ta- TV titles. He was in a tag team match with Jerry Lynn against the Impact players of Lance Storm. Just incredible. And that was put as a main event ahead of Taz defending the world title against Yoshihiro Tajiri. It's kind of like he's like the showpiece, really. And like, Well, yeah. Yeah. But, but apparently what, what Paul Heyman was setting it all up for was for him to feud with Mike Awesome, champion versus champion, who right. truly was what was the more valuable title at this point because Rob Van Ammon held it for 23 months and that was the exact moment that he broke his leg doing a baseball slide which is similar to the one injury that Pac got in that match against Chris Jericho where Jericho had to shove the ref to cause the disqualification yeah yeah was there didn't Mike Awesome like leave soon after as well anyway to go to WCW to become the fat trick thriller well he wasn't that wasn't what was sold to him at the time no (laughs) I'm not saying that was in the contract negotiation, but that is what happened. Talk about the pitch of all pitches. He, not even Don Draper could sell that one. No. Um, so, Jerry Lynn, though, in the other corner, I would say I'm a Jerry Lynn man ahead of Rob Van Dam. I actually write about it in my book, Confessions of a Smart Wrestling Fan. I dedicate a chapter to ECW and how it never really hooked me in. I did enjoy that. I guess the 99 VHS period was the time I was most interested in ECW. But even then, I wouldn't have said it was a better promotion than WWF at the time. I would have definitely said it was better than WCW in 99, but not WWF. 
with what they were doing, uh, I just didn't enjoy the presentational style of it. But I did appreciate that they had a lot more wrestlers who could wrestle and were given opportunities to wrestle. Like guys like Jerry Lynn and Lance Storm and Rob Van Dam and, and the like. That wouldn't get the chance elsewhere, as was always the case with Jerry Lynn. The whole thing about him at this point is that he's the underappreciated talent finally getting his chance to show what he's made of. Right, okay. The analogy I always used was that uh, if you liked Rob Van Dam over Jerry Lynn, it was kind of like liking Bon Jovi over Bon Iver. Okay, okay. That was the analogy I used. Now, that one or the other thing mm. is really interesting, like, thematically to me, because I think this match tried to be both, and in this process became neither. There are really good wrestling moments. There are really good, like, technical spots. And there are really, like, good, like, intricate hardcore sequences and stuff like that. But it doesn't fit for me. It didn't fit when I viewed, like, was watching. It just felt like almost like two separate matches were being wrestled in one. And they just sewed bits of them together. It's like a Frankenstein's monster of a match. I just That's just, like, how it flowed. It was just so, like, bizarre. Like, I... Either be a hardcore match or be a technical match. Well, couldn't the story of the match be that Rob Van Damme's trying to bring in the hardcore element because Jerry Lynn's out doing him in the technical stuff, but then Jerry Lynn's able to match him on the hardcore element as well? The whole story of the match essentially is that Rob Van Damme underestimates Jerry Lynn, and Jerry Lynn ultimately starts to overwhelm him to the point that the referee considers it a Lynn victory when the time limit draw happens. My problem with that is if you were to weigh up yeah, if you were to weigh up how many moves each person executed, it would probably be somewhere around 50-50. Maybe 55-45 for Jerry Lynn. But because they're playing up Jerry Lynn as the babyface, there is an extended beatdown control section from Rob Van Dam over Jerry Lynn. Just because Jerry Lynn was in more control towards the end sequence. They didn't wrestle the match enough to make you think believably that would make sense that the referee, for the one time in the entire history of professional wrestling, has used the referee's discretion of awarding the match instead of it going being considered a time limit draw. Because I do believe that happens. I remember watching a boxing match. It was like one of I think it was one of Chris Eubank Jr.'s first ever matches on Channel Five. Yeah. And at the end of the six minute round or whatever it was, the referee literally held his arm up as if to indicate I don't know if that's saying overriding that the referee can override the judges if he wants to. Sort of like how the referee can override VAR unless he chooses to bring them in. Mm. I don't, I'm not sure how the rules work. And that just it's so unusual that you only do it during like lower card matches that aren't that important. Like, you know, I don't think Mills Lane was ever going to raise someone's arm, even if they'd been dominating them for 12 rounds. Like, you know, the Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder match, they end up being a draw. Yeah, that was like, it was such a, just a bizarre thing that they did. I don't, I guess it was like trying to like indicate that like Jerry Lynn was the guy, but then they, they override that anyway. Like you can do that. You could just do that. And then like the uh, booker can come out and go, no, that's not how it works. There'll be a rematch down the line. But then there's this whole five more minutes thing. It, well, it was like, I think the logic that Paul Heyman was going by was how can I make Jerry Lynn look as good as possible but keep the belt on Rob Van Dam? So the idea being that he was the moral victor of the match under 20 minutes, but that he's such a, a good person 
that he will not accept the title under that circumstance and instead will, you know, it's like being awarded the title by forfeit and saying, I'm not going to take it by forfeit. I will wait for the next per- for the next time he's back healthy and then we'll have a match for the vacant title. Or how like an interim title's like created in UFC. Yeah, but this is obviously not down to injury. It's just a sense of like it's a judge's decision. And he's like, I don't want a judge's decision. I want the knockouts. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. But that does, but that just has never happened in wrestling. Yeah, it's it's just so out of place. This is my one of my more controversial opinions. Maybe I don't think I don't think everyone would think it controversial, but I don't actually think Paul Heyman is as good a booker as people think he was. I think that Paul Heyman is actually maybe the second best promoter after Vince McMahon. By that I mean he got branding and public relations and the manipulation of the media and finding a gap in the marketplace as well as only Vince McMahon has done since then. Like how East WWE was all about branding its guys as superstars and larger-than-life characters, whereas Paul Heyman's idea was to present these guys as badasses, cool, hip, like the bad, the dangerous ones in wrestling. I was saying, like, the idea is that Rob Van Dam was, like, free from all the shackles that had held him back in WCW when he was Robbie V or held him back in the WWF when they were doing the Mr. Monday Night invading angle. Yeah. Like, it's like, this is the only place where a guy can do... What makes a Rob Van Dam match brilliant is when he can bring a chair in and kick you in the face and you expect that <laughs> in every Rob Van Dam match and you're not going to get that in every WWE match or every WCW match. Because it tires. obviously... His whole thing at the time was accentuate the positives and hide the negatives, making the best out of what he could. Because he didn't have the cream of the crop as far as the territory talent, which was what Vince had at the start of of his 1980s expansion. Mm. So he's taking these guys... The, the land of the misfit toys was another way that Taz would describe it. You know, taking someone like Taz, a five foot five, five foot six guy, and at this point his whole gimmick is that he's the true champion of wrestling... And because he plays up that he shoots, the idea was that he would challenge all the other champions in all the other promotions to come out and face him. Yeah. And they never did. But then when he comes to the WWE and suddenly there's five foot six Taz stood next to The Rock. And Vince isn't really interested in keeping him as special as Paul Heyman was. Mm. So my point is that if you watch an ECW pay-per-view, there's just as many dumb finishes and weird time filler matches bleeding into one and the other it's like suddenly oh Nova and Chris Chetty are coming out so we've got a tag team match for five minutes and oh wait here comes Danny Doring and Roadkill and now we've got another different tag team match all of a sudden you know yeah and everyone sort of stayed in place he, he wouldn't pull the trigger for too long enough you know he held it on for too long hence holds off Rob Van Dam getting into the world title picture for literally two years and then when he does he's injured and Everything falls apart. Got to strike while the iron's hot, haven't you? Like, yeah, I think so. And he would fail to do that very often because he kept thinking he could heat it up even more. And this is not a good example of his booking, like at all. Because like it, the whole old Lynn's the moral victor. I just didn't get it. I didn't get it at all. Like I get that this match is influential. I can see why this match is influential. I feel like a lot of early 2000s indie scene was like five or six matches on the card trying to be Rob Van Dam versus Jerry Lynn. 
and be the scene-stealing match. Especially, of course, I mean, it existed beforehand, but the indie standoff yeah. spots at the start. Really, I guess that starts to get popularised with the Dean Malenko-Eddie Guerrero matches of ECW, but this was the one that really followed it through. That was just a requirement of, like, several times in an indie match, and I think it was also on every show. I think it was also like a mutual appreciation society, a way of them baiting the crowd into applauding them. Mm. The crowd thinks that it's a way of showing how clever they are and how respectful they are, that they do applaud what they've seen. Like, we're a good crowd. The, the, the crowd have been worked into a shoot, brother, brother. I guess so, yes. But to the point that it becomes a cliché. To the point that you don't really get the standoff that much anymore. Like, these things come and go. I, you see it sometimes, but like... That early 2000s period was really the end of it. Oh, and another thing you get that went away for quite a long time was the multiple pin sequence, the mm. rolls up and the cradles. I think there are six in this one. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you the moment that that really became passe and they didn't do it anymore. I can guarantee you I know what moment it was. It was when that was like a a, a regular spot in all the Tory Wilson, Stacey Keebler matches. Well, yeah, I know what you mean. That that a lot of divas matches had pinning sequences uh, at that point. Maybe for other reasons, unfortunately, as well. Gotta get them camera angles, indeed. But also, that was just like a sense of well, it's actually quite easy to do as a spot. Yeah, it's more just a cardio test on your referee. I mean, they still do it. I mean, didn't there was one? Was it the Darby Allen MJF match? I think had that in the pay per view. Yes. Yes. They had a very long sequence with that. But that also fit in with the story of the match of MJF trying to win with a headlock takeover, I suppose. Yeah, and trying to prove that he's a, a much better wrestler than Darby. Mm. And Darby was just all paint, face paint and no trousers. So what was your feelings of... Jer- so you were very curious to watch Rob Van Damme yeah. in this match. And you sort of said you, you came out of it feeling maybe a bit deflated. If this is prime, Van Damme doesn't necessarily appeal to you that much. No. What were your expectations going in for Jerry Lynn? Because I know you used to watch TNA. Was Jerry yeah. Lynn a part of TNA at that point? Uh, the, the bits of TNA I saw, I think, was like when the Cruiserweight Challenge was around. I don't know if it like, or... The, Cruiserweight it? Challenge or was it X Division Challenge? X Division, it was like, oh, what was it called? Kevin Nash was like the head of it. Oh, okay. Uh, it was like a whole weird thing. Yeah, I think yeah, Jerry yeah. Lynn was part of that. Yeah, I, Jerry, Jerry already seemed a capable hand from what I've read in Power Slam. Always seemed quite capable. Um, very good. I just wanted to see what he could do. Um, he is a good wrestler, and you can see that in this uh, in this match. Uh, but personally, I don't know if this is the best showcase of his abilities, quite oh, frankly. I disagree with that. I think this is the greatest showcase of his abilities because it shows that he's the one that can get the most out of Rob Van Dam. The thing about Jerry Lynn is that I think he's one of the most selfless wrestlers in the history of the wrestling he lost so frequently in disparity to the amount of abilities that he had. He was basically a jobber to the stars in WCW under the name of Mr. JL. He had famous series of matches with a number... That was one of the things that was interesting with Jerry Lynn. He would have series of matches with wrestlers, all that would go on to become big, bigger stars after it. But it was like these were the matches that made him, them or helped make them. He first came to public attention in some way, shape, or form in the early 90s where really an independent wrestling scene was starting to form with there really being no territories anymore in the early 90s. 
And he and then known as the Lightning Kid, Sean Waltman. Oh, okay. We're having these Japanese wrestling inspired, more high spot focus, more intricate, more advanced, more state of the art wrestling to what you were seeing. And we're getting some buzz in the early tape trading days and the early newsletter days. Like the other end of the scale, if you've got Cactus Jack and Eddie Gilbert getting the tape traders down one end, you've got the Lightning Kid and Jerry Lynn getting the attention in the other. And then somewhere in the middle of that is Sabu having matches with several figures like Al Snow and the Lightning Kid. I don't know if Jerry Lynn was one of them. I think he had a few matches with Mr. JL when Sabu came to WCW because it's just always this sense of... You will always look good in a match with Jerry Lynn. Yeah. And he's willing to let you take hog the spotlights. So he has those matches with the Lightning Kid in 93, 92, before he becomes the 1-2-3 Kid in WWE. And Jerry Lynn doesn't. Again, probably because 1-2-3 Kid's 6 foot 1. Jerry Lynn is about 5 foot 9. I mean, it was that was one thing that I didn't remember as vividly until watching this, like how much smaller he is than Rob Van Damme. I think you always associate Rob Van Damme because he's a high flyer as being smaller than he is. He's clearly over six foot and he's muscular. Like, he never looked out of place against Triple H or any one of the WWF or WCW guys, really. WWE has the habit, though, of making tall people, like, relatively tall people look tiny. Like, Paul Heyman's about six foot odd, apparently. But you'd never guess, because he's next to Roman, or he's next to Brock. He's next to, like, literal giants. Literal, like, genetic freaks. So that makes people like Jerry Lynn, who's five foot nine, maybe five foot ten, struggle in comparison. Like he's Or Taz, to go back to your early example. Yeah. Well, Taz was thicker. He kind of was able to get away with it with his Like a barrel, he yeah, was. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. You could have booked him, you know, he was booked believably badass in mm. ECW, and... You know, he got a reaction when he came to the WWE, but just Vince never saw him as that. And with Jerry Lynn, they never saw him as anything. He would come in and go in the WWF several times. Uh, But as I was saying, he would have these series of matches. Then he goes to ECW in 98, 97, 98, and he's really just a lower mid-card guy. But he's always having these good matches. He's one of the guys that they can program with Rob Van Damme on the house show circuit, and they'll have great matches getting the crowd going. Around the summer of 98, he also had a series of matches with Just Incredible. Yeah. The whole storyline was they were always sort of equal level pegging with one another. I think they like literally kept a record of it. that They were like 7-7 going into Heat Wave 98, where it'd be the blow-off match, where Just Incredible won. And it was that sign of Just Incredible's the guy we're going to have win. He, he won by doing a second rope tombstone pile driver. Oh. <laughs> Jerry Lynn. Very impressive how they do that safely, actually. Uh, again, just another sign of how Jerry Lynn just knew how to work. Then he has these matches with Rob Van Dam. Then he goes to the WWE, gets given the light heavyweight title on his first day in. So you're like, wow, winning a title on your first night. Yeah, but it's the light heavyweight title. Literally the only high-profile match he has is one with Jeff Hardy. In order for him to lose the belt to Jeff Hardy, so that Jeff Hardy can be the light heavyweight champion going up against... Uh, oh, sorry, uh, then Jeff Hardy loses it to X-Pac... So Xbox can be the light heavyweight champion going into the invasion angle because they needed an equivalent against the cruiserweight champion. Oh, right. And it's another telling thing about Jerry Lynn that when the invasion angle happens, who's one of the ECW guys, one of the few ECW guys that doesn't get included in 
the ECW element of the feud. Jerry Lynn. Jerry Lynn. Do they have 10 ECW guys and he's not one of them? Just like a, a good hand. Well, that was all he was seen at that point. Yeah. He was, a guy, again, the guy that could get anything out of anyone. And Rob Van Dam requests a match with him against Jerry Lynn. And they give him one WWE match on Sunday Night Heat. Oh. They get seven minutes to do just a truncated version of what they've done on this show. Mm. You know, it's like Jerry Lynn does get a one-month run with the world title in ECW. That's what he gets from them. They have him drop it then to Steve Carino a month after he wins it. And then he turns heel and says, I'm fed up of being treated like a mid-card or I'm going to be selfish. Teams with Don Callis, actually. Okay. And the final pay-per-view that ECW ever put on, the final match, is Jerry Lynn making an open challenge and Rob Van Dam comes out. Rob Van Dam, who'd had contract disputes with ECW and hadn't actually appeared on ECW TV at all for like the last few months. And then Rob Van Dam and Jerry Lynn do the match that they were doing before, but I think it ends with the Van Terminator, Rob Van Dam's big move. Oh, okay. And the last thing you see on an ECW TV show is Rob Van Dam pinning Jerry Lynn. And Rob Van Dam's not even a contracted ECW talent whilst Jerry Lynn is at that point. As is tradition. <laughs> like, Rob Van Dam won every match against Jerry Lynn except one. And that one was them both making their return from injuries. Rob Van Dam's the one that cost him the TV title. Jerry Lynn's a different one. Mm. And Jerry Lynn's only victory over Rob Van Dam came from interference from jo- uh, Rob Van Dam's friend, uh, Scotty Riggs, a.k.a. Scotty Anton. Oh, okay. So it's not even... Jerry Lynn's victory is ultimately to push a, an angle for Rob Van Dam. Just, just there for some... Always there for someone else. And then he gets released by WWE, and just when NWA TNA starts up, he gets signed up for them. And then he just starts losing to AJ Styles in loads of matches. But they have a match that really brings AJ Styles to the public's attention. Their matches in the early TNA shows that AJ won the majority of, and then they would take those to the indie scene. They had that match in the one-time One Ring of Honor show Jerry Lynn turned up to in 2002. Mm. And so then TNA was the place that he was treated most respectfully, I suppose. He was presented as an equal in the X Division 2, Loki and AJ Styles. And, you know, he's like 10, 15 years older than both of them, but he's still able to keep up with them. Yeah. And so TNA is the place where he's most respectfully placed on the card but over time it he starts to fall away and leaves eventually and then he comes to ring of honor and gabe sapolsky loved jerry lynn from his time in ecw but he puts and he puts him in like the world title scene but he sees jerry lynn in ring of honor as a position very akin to how christian i think was being perceived when he came to aew yeah like he's a good guy to put in as a challenger for the world title but not necessarily the guy that you put the belt on but he was just one of the many rivals for Nigel McGuinness's world title. Until the big dispute points, and really the point that Gabe's Polsky was given his marching orders, and I really stopped caring about Ring of Honor as a result. And that was that was when Ring of Honor was being used to make the wrestler. In the movie The Wrestler, they go they wrestles at a Ring of Honor show in his final show. Yeah. And the owner, Carrie Silkin, feels like we need to mirror the wrestler storyline as much as we can. And who looks the most like Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler? Who has the story the closest to Mickey Rourke's in The Wrestler? Jerry Lynn. Right. 
let's do the wrestler cash-in and have Jerry Lynn be our Randy the Ram Robinson. The problem with that is Randy the Ram Robinson is meant to be like a top star. And the whole thing about Jerry Lynn was that he didn't get the recognition he deserved in the first place. Mm. It's not that he failed, it's that people failed him. <laughs> like, Booker's failed him throughout this whole time. Yeah. Like, there's never been stories of Jerry Lynn being a problem, having a drug addiction, or being anything like that. Like, being the ultimate company man. And so, he says to Gabe, I want you to book Jerry Lynn to win the title. And Gabe had it always planned for it to be Tyler Black. Yeah. And Gabe was like, that's madness. And Carrie said, well, we're doing it, so you're not the booker anymore. And gave the book to Adam Pearce. And Adam Pearce booked it. Fans didn't care for it. Quickly dropped the title to Austin Aries in order for Tyler Black to beat a babyface for the title. But then Tyler Black basically... The momentum was gone. Yeah, well, Tyler Black was like literally got chance of your Lex Luger to sum up where his position was. So this was all... And that was when I really lost it because it was like Ring of Honor are bad bookers. The one thing you would get from Ring of Honor, you get some mistakes, but overall it was well booked. Yeah. And now it wasn't. Not at least for what I wanted. I mean, I didn't hate Jerry Lynn for it, but I was always like, this isn't the story. They think they're telling me a story and it's not. It's not with Jerry Lynn. That's not how I recognize Jerry Lynn. I liked Jerry Lynn. I liked Jerry Lynn as a wrestler. I would I would watch like 10 random Jerry Lynn matches well ahead of picking 10 random Rob Van Dam matches. Yeah. But yeah. And this would be one of them. I think this is a great example of Jerry Lynn. And it's just one of those things of like, who's the sizzle and who's the steak, as JR would put it. You would leave that match thinking about Rob Van Dam maybe for the high spots, but Jerry Lynn was the one that was holding it all together. And there's a reason that Rob Van Dam loves Jerry Lynn matches because Jerry Lynn got the most out of him and Rob Van Dam always won. <laughs> Dream scenario, isn't it? Yeah. It made me look good and I go over. Yeah. Wrestler's wet dream. Yeah. Yeah. I get that and I get that both of them really do look good in what they do. Just when I watched the physical match itself, it was, it just felt like an awkward mishmash to me. Is it just because what they do now has been done better and with extra elements added to it that this match is lacking, essentially? It's like watching a sci-fi film from the 1960s where now we've got the special effects to match the vision of the director. Yeah, basically. Uh, this this hasn't aged well. I don't think that's entirely fair. I think this is a good match. I don't think this is a bad match at all. I think it's a nice... I think it's an interesting artefact. Just because it hasn't aged well doesn't mean it's not good for mm. for that time. But it's a product of its time. And what it's spawned, what it's inspired, has taken it to like far greater heights. And you have to remember, I grew up on those greater heights. Mm. I didn't grow up on this. And even the matches that are spot fests like this match arguably is, the spots now are more spectacular. Yes, exactly. So... If you were to say then, Simon, do you want to watch some more Rob Van Dam or do you want to watch some more Jerry Lynn? Or do you want to watch more Rob Van Dam versus Jerry Lynn? What order would you take that, actually? Like, you could watch 10 matches of Rob Van Dam against someone else, 10 matches of uh, Jerry Lynn against someone else, or 10 of the other Rob Van Dam Jerry Lynn matches. In what order of preference would you watch those? If there's, like, three compilations in your inbox that you got to watch. Okay, I would go Jerry Lynn... Van Damme, and then Jerry Lynn Van Damme. That's interesting. I do think that there are moments in this that are, like, building up to other sequences. Like, I think, like, 
the whole... So this wasn't... Like I, said, I think this was the second televised match that they had with each other. It might have been the third. So there's a story there that you can see where people... They're learning from previous mistakes. And I think that chair swinging six... Uh, spot that's like the best spot in the match is one of those moments. Yeah. I think another one is where Rob Van Dam goes for a monkey flip, but then Jerry Lynn dodges and turns around and turns it into a sunset flip powerbomb. That's really good, that. Yeah. And the other one that I also remember is because I remember seeing the original spot, which is Jerry Lynn going for a tornado DDT. And maybe that's what it was the first time. And then the second match, Jerry Lynn goes for the tornado DDT and Rob Van Dam turns it into a Northern Light suplex. Mm. And then in this match, Jerry Lynn goes for the tornado DDT. Rob Van Dam lifts him up to do the Northern Light suplex, but Jerry Lynn kicks his legs, kicks his legs, and brings it down. And because of that, like, the velocity is even harder, and, you know, how Rob Van Damme loves to do those head bounces. That was That was a really good, like, spot there. He sold that superbly. Filmed really well as well, because I think, because they have the entrance ramp that's of the equal, um, similar to the one AEW has now. So the cameraman's on, like, the same level as the wrestlers, mm. without having to stand awkwardly in the corner. He's just on the entrance rampway, so it's the perfectly in line with where to see it. And because they go so quick, you don't not see Rob Van Damme's head hit the mat. Because yeah. so quick, you don't know, you can't tell whether he did or didn't. I don't like to talk about star ratings, but because this match is a five-star frog splash match, and of course that was one of the things everyone always loved about Rob Van Damme, and he would, he was a good, he's a good seller. He's a good crowd guy. He paces the match pretty well, I think. Like, they start off KG, but then they go into the spots. Like, he's a personality. He gets the showmanship angle of it. There's a reason that when he came to WWE, he was, like, the most popular guy on the roster within three weeks. And they had to essentially build the invasion angle around him, in part, because of the popularity he was drawing, despite the problems he was causing backstage by hitting people a bit too hard in the face that weren't used to it, or literally not turning up for an in-ring angle because he didn't know he was supposed to be there. Just Incredible was the only one that realised it, said something to Shane, and then you can see him run away (laughs) (laughs) and come back with Rob Van Damme, because Van Damme was supposed to be there. (laughs) But that kind of perfectly fit into the storyline as well, even though it wasn't what it was meant to be. But that was really, like, that was one of the, that was also one of the first times where it's like the WWE not listening to the fans. Like, they listened to them when they built up The Rock. They listened to them when they built up Stone Cold Steve Austin. Rob Van Dam was on that ascendancy of popularity that we'd seen with The Rock, we'd seen with Stone Cold, the other way around. We'd sort of seen with Chris Jericho as well. But this was the time where they were like, no, we don't like Rob Van Dam. Okay. We don't like Rob Van Dam as much as you lot, so we're not going to push Rob Van Dam like you want us to. And then they finally put the world title on him, like, four years after he's at his hottest. Yeah. When they bring back ECW. And then Rob Van Dam manages to screw that up badly and really make WWE look like they were wise in the first place to not want to put the belt on him. Yeah, I mean, not really. A, a great moment to launch your career and you kind of, like, piss it all away. Where does Rob Van Dam stand for you, then, in the legacy of pro wrestling? What do you think is Rob Van Dam's place now, as aside from being the guy that has the wife that is... Re- has also got a girlfriend and is really into twerking. <laughs> it's it's a little bit semi-tragic, it seems to me, with Rob Van Damme. A little bit. Where he is now. I think he's a man who like helped a uh, inspiring company. He was like one of the key sparks of inspiration within that uh, inspiring company. And 
you have to look at what wrestling is now and where that inspiration came from. Uh, you all can often cite that gig that uh, loads of different bands claim they were at, at least. Oh, the Sex Pistols at the Manchester Free Trade Hall. Yeah, and ECW kind of was that in a way, if you look at how wrestling developed. And he was a key part of that. So his his place in wrestling history is assured, but, and there is a big but, through either his own fault in 2006 or company spite in 2002, there could have been more. He's one of the could have been. He's a should have been multiple time WWE world champion that was a one time for one month world champion. Yeah. Yeah. I think that if you're going to do, if we were to say, let's do the 100 matches in the history of pro wrestling, like to understand the history of pro wrestling that people can watch, I think you could make a case for this match being one of the ones that they need to watch. Maybe not in 100, but if it was like maybe 200, I think this might be one of the matches you'd need to watch to understand the path that wrestling went down. Yeah. Um, and, and you can certainly see that. Like you see, when you see this match, you see, okay, that's where the Young Bucks sort of could have got their ideas from. That's where Will Ospreay and Ricochet could have got their like a, in, initial inspiration from before they took that to a new level. That's where, this is where the notion of what makes a great match really started to split opinion, maybe more vocally. Because mm. there would have been a lot of people online that would say these are like the greatest matches of all time in 1999. Definitely the best matches in the world being wrestled at the time. And Power Slam argued that. I remember, I think they put both this and the Hardcore Heaven matches as their best match of the month for those months. That was a feature they were doing in Power Slam at the time. It was Power Slam's writing up of these matches that got me excited and were like, when the ECW videos started being made available just in like HMV and MVC, that was where I was going to get my videos at the time. If that means anything to you. It does not, no. Well, MVC was a weird one where you had to, like, if you had a membership card that was, like, a discounted price. It's all what Tesco's are doing now with their club cards. So, like, most VHSs that would be fourteen ninety nine. And when you think about, like, inflation, how much that is now, you know? Um, when was this? 99? 99. 99, So, they'd be, like, fourteen ninety nine, But with an MVC card, you get them for, like, thirteen seventy nine or twelve ninety nine or something along those lines. I also remember that was it was in MVC that I bought the one ECW show that a friend of mine will always remember who's not a wrestling fan because I showed it to him after I bought it, which was ECW's Big Ass Extreme Bash. What a title. Yeah. That and Barely Legal, he was like, are you just buying porn? It <laughs> looks like you're just buying porn. And it's like Cactus Jack on the front cover. He's like, what kind of porn are you into, young man? <laughs> actually if you look at inflation by the way you're kind of still getting value for money compared to what some wwe dvds were going for back in their heyday so 15 pounds in 1999 equates to 22 pounds 79p today but that's just for like one three hour show backs true when you factor in the network then you're getting screwed <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> We've got every ECW pay-per-view for nine ninety nine, and I've actually cut that out of my budget now. Yeah. how little value it is to me. Ah, <laughs> oh, God. We've gone on for a long time with this one. I did not expect us to go this long. Well, we kind of like... Sh- it's more of a Jerry Lynn introspective in a way than it is... Retrospective. Although Jerry Lynn probably is quite introspective about these things. Yeah. But I think, I think maybe the most telling thing about where they both are now 
is Rob Van Dam is doing a weakened version of his act in smaller promotions, whereas Jerry Lynn is a very trusted backstage agent for AEW. Yeah. And was even used with Tony Khan as Tony Khan's right-hand man when they did that little in-the-crowd appearance in uh, when they went doing sort of back and forth with Impact Wrestling. Yeah. That it was Jerry Lynn that was there. Game. Maybe that was also because of his TNA history as well. But, um, yeah. Let's hear it for the Jerry Lynns of this world. Woo! <laughs> but anyway, Simon, if uh, people want to get in touch with you to talk about their playlist that they might be willing to offer you, how can they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of seconds it took after he blew the bloody thing that I wanted Bill Alfonso to eat his fucking whistle. Yeah. <laughs> My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N. That's are the second and third letters in Van for Van Damme. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you're putting out gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. For the next match of the week pick, assuming we don't have any five-star matches to follow this up with, Simon, what will we be discussing next? It's uh, your pick, and you've gone to look for a particular wrestler that's finally... Maybe a bit more in the wrestling consciousness thanks to certain decisions that have been made recently. Oh, yeah. It's purple and black time, baby. As we are watching Owen Hart take on... Not in purple and black, though. Not in purple and black. (laughs) He's in black, but... (laughs) Those are the colours he represents, let's face it. But no, he wore pink and black. He never wore purple and black. Oh, pinky purple. Magenta? (laughs) I'll take magenta. Okay. Representing magenta and black, it's Owen Hart versus Shiro Koshinaka. The master of the hip attack, i.e. ramming his bum into your face. That's where Asuka gets it from. <laughs> and Naomi, to a lesser extent, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Watch out for hip attacks and have a great week. Until the next week. Oh, 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 oh,